0: I'm going to read the first 9 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Bow your heads as I pray. Father, we rejoice in the good news that is proclaimed to us. And yet as we, we hear these words, Lord, we need the correction, the instruction that they bring. Lord, we, like the church in Corinth, are quick to to turn from the gospel and turn to trusting in ourselves. So, Father in heaven, let us see Jesus Christ. Let us hear about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Let us find hope in him. Lord, I pray for those who come today with with sorrow, with sadness, feeling the weight of this world, feeling like they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word, that, that even there you are with us. Lord, others come with joy, with excitement, feeling the the sunshine of your blessing. So, Father, let them rejoice in your grace, your mercy, your love, and reflect your glory to those around them. Lord, some come today with with questions, with fears, with doubts. Pray that your word would give us the answers as we turn to Christ. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. You've all had that embarrassing moment when a friend, a, a colleague, somebody close to you kind of points out, you've got something right, right right, there. You know, that, that, that moment of, of small embarrassment, though, saves you from the bigger embarrassment of walking into your presentation or your meeting with that thing right there. Well, sometimes we need people to, to correct us in that way because we don't always have a, a mirror Candy. But but not only are we not good at seeing what's stuck in our teeth, sometimes we're not very good at the broader sense of of who we are, of what's really wrong in our lives. The, the, The Corinthians, they were calling themselves spiritual, exalting themselves over one another. Look at what I have done. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at all that I have accomplished. And Paul is walking into this church, this church that he that he planted, a church in which he served for, for a year and a half, a church with whom he's had correspondence and visits. And he's holding up the mirror to them to say, stop calling yourselves spiritual when you've got that right there, that mess, that brokenness. You can't you can't call yourself spiritual and yet be jealous and fractured and quarreling. Because to really be spiritual would mean you would follow the spirit. You would live like the Spirit would want you to live. And so Paul is really challenging the church to have a, a right view of themselves, holding up that mirror so that, that we can rightly understand ourselves. We can rightly understand the ministry that, that's been given to us, and we can rightly understand who God is. Now, y- you may think, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I'm, you know, this sounds kind of very insider. And admittedly, it is. This is Paul... An apostle of the church, a church planter, a pastor, telling Christians how they should live, what their lives should look like. So yes, in that sense, it's a very insider kind of discussion. But, but stick with us this morning. Listen to what Paul's saying, because I think Paul is actually going deeper, deeper than just what it looks like to live as a Christian. He's, he's telling us something true about what it looks like to live as a human what it looks like to find a way to to live authentically and honestly with a right view of who we are, why we're here, and who God is, our relationship to him. See, Paul offers the promise here that God makes the gospel grow. And then the challenge that we must serve his mission. God makes the gospel grow, and so we serve his mission. This starts, as as Paul makes clear, with a right view of ourselves. Paul begins... chapter three, kind of a churn from the opening two chapters, but still within this broader context of, of what it looks like to, to live in the church. He's coming back to the theme of divisions in the church that we saw back in chapter one. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now he, in chapter two, has just made this, this contrast between those who have the Spirit and those who do not. Look back at verse 14 of chapter two. This is, the, this is the, the big and bold contrast that, that Paul sets between humanity. This is the dividing line of humanity. Chapter 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. And verse 15, the spiritual man. So the contrast, the, the big, dark dividing line is between those who do not have the Spirit of God and those who do have the Spirit of God. So those who have the Spirit of God can call themselves spiritual, with a capital S. Spiritual in that I have the Spirit of God. If, if you put your trust in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are spiritual. But now Paul's going to press deeper. He's going to talk to those that are spiritual, with a capital S, and say, but don't presume upon that kind of title. So you don't go around saying, look at me, I'm spiritual. In the more ordinary way that we would kind of use that word. The ordinary sense of, I've reached a a higher stage of enlightenment. I've progressed further than you. I know more than you. Paul says, I can't address you as spiritual because you're acting like infants. I mean, not even children. You're acting like infants. You're infantile believers. Now, it's important, though, that we do notice he is talking to Christians. Look at the very first word of, of this chapter, brothers, brothers and sisters. It's the, it's the familial term that Paul uses to describe fellow Christians. So he's talking to Christians, but he's saying, stop acting like infants. And one of the ways you act like an infant is when you say, look at how great I am, look at what I have accomplished, look at how spiritual I am. He's saying, I can't even rightly use the term spiritual to describe you. yes. With a big capital S, you have the Spirit, but you're not living like it. You're living like children, like infants. And so I had to give you milk, not solid food, because you're you're not ready. Look at how he describes the the church in verse 3. You are still worldly. You're living by the desires, the patterns of the world, the flesh, the sinful nature that's within you. You're letting the world and its standards, your own sinfulness, gain control. You're acting like children, like mere men, verse 4 says. Paul is, is telling them that, that you're not acting like the one who is spiritual. You're acting like the one who just chases after your, your, heart's, your own heart's desires, not the desires of God's Spirit. It's the same kind of, of language that, that the Apostle Paul uses throughout his letters. We can see it clearly in Romans, Romans chapter 8, when he describes the one who is worldly the one who is of the flesh, of the sinful nature. In Romans 8, verse 7, he says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. See, if you are a Christian, you've been been bought by Christ. You belong to the Spirit, and so act like spiritual people. Stop acting like infants. Stop acting in worldly, selfish manners. And Paul can point out to the church the problems. In verse 3, there's jealousy quarreling among you. That's the evidence. The evidence that that one of you in verse 4 says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos. Chapter 1 says, some were even saying, I follow Peter or I follow Christ. I mean, that's the really spiritual category. I'm even better than the rest of you. Paul says, as soon as you do that, you're betraying your your worldly desires, your sinfulness. See, Paul expects spiritual growth in the church. He's telling them that that they weren't ready for, for, for solid food. He had to keep giving them milk, but they're still not ready. But he's expecting spiritual growth. If you have the Spirit, then the Spirit will bring about, the fruit of the Spirit will bring about real change in your lives. I mean, Paul wants to see them wants to see progress ethically, behaviorally, morally, spiritually in their lives. They should become more and more like Christ. Now, in, in the world in which we live, this, this idea of, of progress when it comes to ethics is often, often put in this category. You need to make sure you're on the right side of history. And so is, is, is that what Paul is saying? is Paul saying you need, to, you need to progress beyond the repressive moral structures that were keeping you down. You need to, to reach this new level of enlightenment. Because how's that argument used today? You need to be on the right side of history. It's used to, to move away from the repress, what, what feel like those repressive, old-fashioned kind of moral standards. And so when it comes to, to sexual ethics, we're told you need to be on the right side of history. When it comes to questions about gender identity, you need to be on the right side of history. Is that what Paul is saying? Is Paul saying, when he, when he says he expects spiritual progress, is he saying you need to change your standards? No. I mean, look at what, what Paul ends up saying. And particularly, you we would see this as we flip to chapters 5, 6, and 7, as Paul talks about these these ethical and sexual kind of standards. He's saying, I expect progress from you. And that means going back and listening to what God has to say. Because to just make progress according to worldly standards, I mean, that looks like progress to our culture, but that's no progress at all. Because what are you measuring it against? Well, maybe you're measuring it against the the foolish things you thought your grandparents believed. But doesn't that mean that your grandchildren will look back at the foolish things you now believe and say, wow, I'm glad we've progressed past that? Because we need a a standard by which we can judge. Otherwise, well, who should tell us what we should really believe, how we should live, how we should act? Well, it's the culture around us. It's the world. Well, do you mean our culture as progressive, modern North Americans? Or do you mean the culture of other parts of the world, or do you mean the culture of today, right now, or do you mean the culture of a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? I mean, if the standard is just do it what feels good, what's right, what feels right to you, what what feels culturally acceptable, that's no standard at all. Paul is saying you you can't live like that. You'll be left confused and, and lost. What you really need is to live according to the wisdom of God's Spirit stop living according to your own selfish sinful personal standards and live according to the standards of the spirit. But you see that's that's what each of us needs. We need a right view of who we are. Because within us as Christians there's this continuing struggle between what the spirit makes known to us and what our our sinful hearts long for. That's the struggle of the church in Corinth. He's saying I, I I can't address you as spiritual. Not using the, the word the way you're using it. Because you're still living like sinners. You're still living according to those, the, the worldly, fleshly, sinful standards. I mean, you and I have these, these competing forces at work within us. Like, like when you come in from the, the cold, your fingers are numb, but you come into a, a warm room. Well, the competing forces of the, the cold from the outside that, that, that's within you and now the warmth of the room that you've stepped into. You feel that, but, but the warmth will win. And that's what Paul is saying. You have stepped out of the cold and into the warmth of life in God's family, in the, but under the, the power and influence and control and guidance of God's Spirit. And so warm yourselves up and live according to God's standards. The battle has been decisively won by Jesus And the power of his spirit at work within you. God makes the gospel grow. And so we are called to serve his mission. And so we need to have a right view of ourselves as people who, who even as Christians, live with these conflicting standards, these continuing personal sinful standards that battle within us. But We also need to have a right view of of what we're called to do. A right view of, of ministry. Look at how Paul continues the argument. He's pointed out to the the church their own personal sinfulness when they say, look at me, I follow Apollo." So look at me, I follow Paul. Paul asks the question then in verse 5, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul and Apollos the great apostle and evangelist of the church. Apollos, the teacher within the church in Corinth. What are they? Well, we might want to say, Paul is the greatest theologian in history, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. But what does he say of himself? I'm only a servant. A servant who has no authority on his own, a servant who has no power of his own, but comes representing the Lord. The Lord is the one who assigned each of them his task. Then Paul in verse 6 says, I planted the seed. Paul was the first one to go to Corinth with the gospel, taking the good news of Jesus Christ to this city. He planted the church. Apollos watered it. He came and taught the truth of of what God has done, how we should live, teaching the scriptures, explaining them to the church, helping this, this little plant grow. But look at what Paul says in verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. God made it grow. All All of the glory for the success of what has taken place belongs to God. Paul's just the farmer who planted the seed. He can't bring about the miracle of new life from that little seed. He just puts it in the ground. He just proclaims the gospel. Apollos comes along and waters it. Those are necessary roles used by God, but God is the one who made it grow. Then look, look at how Paul continues in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul's saying, I'm nothing. I'm a servant. Yes, I, I planted this church, but my name shouldn't be on the cornerstone because God is the one who... Only God is the one who makes things grow. And Paul says that, as he continues this argument, giving all of the credit to God, look at verse 8. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So the purpose is given to him by God. It's what we saw. The Lord is the one who signed him this task. The Lord has given Paul, the Lord has given Apollos this purpose of ministry. And they will be re- rewarded according to, to their labor. Now, it might mean that, that Paul is saying that, that the spiritual effort, the, the prayerful work that I put in, then, then God's going to make that, that grow. He's going to seek because he sees my heart. He also knows those times, Paul's thinking, when I've stood and preached out of selfishness, out of the, the desire for other people to think well of me. And, and so what, what frees Paul in this moment? to be able to come to this church and speak very hard words. These opening chapters have been very challenging. And actually, it just continues to get worse as the letter goes on. Paul will have very hard things to say. Why is Paul willing to speak so directly and with such harsh and clear and powerful words? Because he's not worried about what they will think of him. His task has been assigned to him by God. His purpose is directed by God. His reward comes from God. He doesn't need the church to validate him, to prove his worth, his significance. And you see, this this is actually where I think now we're, we're getting deeper into what it means to be human. Because you and I regularly, consistently, Look to other people to make us feel good about ourselves, to validate what we've done. That is a danger for the preacher who stands before you and thinks, won't they think I'm so spiritual? I will consolidate into the 27 most brilliant minutes, the greatest truths they have ever heard. They will get to see the 27 best minutes of my week, and they will think I'm great. And yet... I lose sleep at night over what you'll think of me. Now, there are times when, Pastor Lee, I, I should be losing sleep because I'm praying for you. I'm at, at the hospital room with you. I'm, I'm involved in ministry with you. But I shouldn't lose sleep just because I'm afraid or frustrated by what's happening. Because what does that show? That just, that's, the, that's the Holy Spirit holding up the mirror to my own heart and saying, Kevin... You're getting your worth, your value from your work, from your ministry. No, your reward. Your reward for ministry doesn't come from the people around you. Yes, there are times when I, when I get to celebrate in great joy the way God's at work in you. We as a church will celebrate today with great joy as faith makes a profession of faith before us. And I have the privilege to baptize her. I get the great joy of seeing God at work in you. But my reward doesn't come from how, how great you think I am. But the purpose that God has given to me. And so, so how do we move past that that desire to have other people validate us, affirm us? Paul's telling us here, verse 7 think rightly about who you are, about your purpose. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. That's where you need to start. I'm nothing. Nothing, only God deserves the glory and praise. But then with that, see, see, that's where some of us stop. And we're OK, like, I get, I'm there, Kevin. I don't feel like anything. Not today, not this week, not this month. But, but we need to keep going to verse eight, where we're reminded, I'm nothing but I have a purpose that's given by God. I have a mission that's given by God. I have significance from God. See, I don't need to draw my value, my worth from you because I'm accepted as a son of God. I'm given a purpose to to proclaim his gospel. That's the purpose for us as a church, to make the gospel known. And so the only solution to this internal struggle is to rightly see who we are, and the mission that we've been given. We have significance and value, but it's given to us by God. God makes the gospel grow, and we must serve his mission. We need a right view of ourselves, a right view of our ministry, and now a right view of God. It's really just a reminder of what we've already said. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God Made it grow. The work of the church, the spiritual work, the new life that we each need can only come from God. God gets all of the credit. Paul gets none of the credit. Apollos gets none of the credit. Verse 7: only God who makes things grow. Or continues even in verses 8 and 9. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Each will be rewarded according to his own purpose. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's building. Everything belongs to God. Do you hear the the repeated echo of that truth? Those who serve Christ are... That's. Do you hear the verb? Those who serve Christ are servants. God is the one who gives growth. Everything belongs to God. This is God's church. Now, I know sometimes we We use adjectives in the the ordinary sense of my church. You know, I'll ask another pastor, how are things going at your church? But ultimately, I need to be reminded to step back and say, it's not my church. It's God's church. You are God's field. God is causing the growth. God is doing the work here. And so it doesn't matter how long you have been here doesn't matter if your, your name was just added to the membership rolls in recent days or you ha- your name has been there longer than, than many of us have been alive. It's not your church. It's God's church. It doesn't matter how much money you have given. It's not your church. It doesn't matter how many hours you spent here serving this week. It's not your church. It's God's church. God's the one doing the work. You're the servant. And so you get to joyfully give. Generously give because it belongs to Him. See, only God gives life. Only God makes things grow. And do you see here is we're now really pressing deeply into the central truth of what it means to be a Christian. Only God gives life. The new life, the spiritual life that we need, can only come from God. And how does it come to us? God himself gave his life for us. How does God cause growth in the church? Through the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus willingly giving himself for us. Jesus taking the role of the servant. See, so why can Paul joyfully serve in the church without thinking that's, that's a meager or a lowly role? Because the Savior he serves served him. And went further than Paul could ever go because the servant, Jesus Christ, died in your place. The servant gave everything. Jesus served you. And so this this has to humble us. It means you need to put your trust in Jesus. That's where you find life and purpose. In meaning. So if you've not put your trust in Jesus before, if you've, if you've not understood the central message of Christianity, which, which we saw back in chapter 2, a message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, then you need to, to turn from your worldly ways, from your sinful attitudes, and turn and find forgiveness in Jesus. Put your trust in him. But do you see, church, brothers and sisters, how this is where you and I are freed to serve him. There's nothing that can't be asked of you. There's no task too big, no time commitment too large, no amount of, of money or energy that's too great for the purposes of God. Because what did the Son of God, the Savior, Jesus the Lord do? He gave his life for you. And see so you and I, we must step beyond the complacency. Of just being content to just be here, living as mere infants. We must expect growth because God is bringing about growth through the work of His Spirit. So we can't pretend to call ourselves spiritual without actually growing, without changing. And the next steps that you should take these are going to sound like the kind of thing you've heard before open your Bible. Expect it to change your life. Pray. Ask God's Spirit to convict you of sin to hold up that mirror to your heart. Come to a community group so that others can can gently but truthfully point out the mess in your life and remind you of the hope of the gospel. Sit in a Sunday school class and diligently study Scripture with others. Yeah, they're not profound steps. Not in the... The simplest sense, but they are profound in that you're coming to God and asking His Spirit to work in you. And it means then that we can serve Him humbly because our purpose comes from Him. We're not merely validated by what other people say by their thanks. We serve because it's God's church. So if we're going to call ourselves spiritual, then we should expect growth. We should be willing to serve. We should derive our purpose from God. Give Him all the glory. Jonathan Edwards is the greatest American theologian. We don't need to qualify it with of the 18th century. He's the greatest American theologian. His his writings on on theology and on spiritual revival are still read and devoured today. He was an insightful preacher, a brilliant scholar, for a very brief period at the end of his life. He was the president of what's now Princeton University. But in 1750, his congregation in Northampton voted to remove him. He'd been there for 21 years as their pastor. And this wasn't like a split-down-the-middle kind of vote. This was a contentious couple years building. Ninety percent of the congregation wanted him gone. So they voted him out in June. A couple of weeks after they've had guest preachers come and fill the pulpit, they they go to Edwards, who's still living in town, hasn't yet moved west to continue his ministry, and ask him, will you come and preach for us? They want him, the pastor they just kicked out, to come and be the, their guest preacher. Now, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the, the self-doubt, the, the introspection, the fear that comes with preaching in a place where you know people love you, But now, in a place where you know 90% of the people in this room don't want you here. But Edward stayed that summer and preached a message of hope and peace and love because it wasn't his church. It's God's church. They were God's people, and he saw the, the spiritual complacency in them. And so he was willing to continue to push them to grow spiritually. He preached because he knew that the church belongs to God, that spiritual growth comes from God. He preached because he knew he had a Savior who had been rejected for him. We're called to plant the gospel, to water it. God gives the growth. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we need your word to expose our sin, expose our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would offer us comfort in your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would point us to the hope of our Savior, our Rescuer, our Redeemer, Jesus, our servant, the one who willingly served us by going to the cross. Lord, for those who sit here, even now as we pray, reflecting on these truths, I pray that that you would give them the faith to believe. That those who have never trusted Jesus as Savior would now, right now, even as we pray, turn and put their trust in you. Lord, for those of us who who are spiritual, who have been redeemed by your work, who have your spirit, Lord, let that let that description describe our lives our attitudes. Let us be spiritual in following after you, in lovingly serving you. So Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our servant, our rescuer, our king. Amen.